The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everybody? Welcome into episode eight of season four of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week's guest is Dr. David Glover. David is Associate Professor of Percussion at Slippery Rock University, which is just north of Pittsburgh here. And at Slippery Rock, he teaches applied percussion, percussion ensemble, jazz band, percussion methods, music history, world percussion. Um, there's a new pop music program that they're developing. Um, he has multiple degrees, a bachelor's from the University of North Florida, a master's degree from Florida State, and a doctorate from the University of Texas in Austin. He's an incredible drummer, incredible percussionist. He's a former president of the Pennsylvania chapter of the Percussive Arts Society. Uh, very curious about all areas of percussion. So in this episode, we wanted to focus on 10 areas of percussion that aren't necessarily drum set, but can be very influential and, and very important for us as drum set players to be aware of. So different regions of the world, just different styles. Um, so this is a deep dive, so let's get to it. Um, 10 different areas of percussion with Dr. David Glover. Well, now we gotta dive in. So you prepared 10 areas of percussion that you think all drummers should explore, because I think I originally asked you um, for this to be, since, but I know most of our listeners are drum set players. Right. And then why they should check out non-drum set percussion playing. Absolutely. Uh, so let's just dive into your list. Number one on your list is, not surprising, West African. <laughs> Are these well, in any started, particular order or just random? I, I, well, I started just stream of consciousness writing out, you know, a bunch of, of different things that I thought were important or, or cool to check out or just interesting to me. I. Uh, Hopefully they're interesting to everybody else, but uh, obviously you're not going to hit uh, uh, with every one of these. But I started and then rearranged them very quickly, realizing that, you know, if I'm going to talk about this, then I should probably talk about this before. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can't go wrong with starting with West African music. I, mm -hmm. I think almost everything in the music world is touched by West African music to some extent. Uh, these days with the popularity of uh, American pop music and jazz music and the lineage of all those uh, styles of music that came in between, uh, all that started with West African roots. So I think it's always a good idea to uh, get as much West African music specifically as you, as you can uh, on a roots level. Uh, just to hear where that stuff is coming from. And you'll immediately be able to pick up on uh, how that stuff relates to whatever it is you're doing, whether you're playing timpani uh, in a classical setting or whether you're playing uh, drum sets or whether you're playing tambourine or whether you're playing, uh, who knows, what else, congas, you know? Uh, it all It all comes from Africa. And specifically... Most of the stuff we're listening to comes from West Africa specifically, uh, uh, unfortunately due to the slave trade, but that's, that's the unfortunate uh, side of all of this uh, and the ugly, uh, dirty history that we, we deal with as Americans all the time. But uh, it's one of the beautiful things that came out of that really dark, ugly period in our history is this connection to West African music. So um, 
there's all kinds of aspects of it that you could be listening for, like polyrhythm and improvisation and uh, call and response. It's all there, and it it's all intertwined in our music uh, to this day. Uh, if you've never heard Baba Ola Tunji um, or Bernard Woma, uh, these types of folks, uh, do yourself a favor and, and and check that stuff out. There's so much wisdom in their playing. They're, these these rhythms that they're playing are so deep and they're so old, they're so ancient, uh, and they're just masterful players. Uh, it's just beautiful to listen to. So I would just encourage anybody uh, to go out and check that out. Um, if you're a drum set player, uh, obviously checking out somebody like Art Blakey uh, to get that connection. If you're in the jazz world, uh, Will Calhoun is another one of my drum heroes. I uh, spent a lot of time in West Africa and has adapted West African rhythms and uh, techniques to his drum set playing. Uh, Will Kennedy is another one. Uh, you guys have talked about Art and Will uh, already uh, with uh, some of my Pittsburgh heroes. Um, locally, there's a guy named Jim Donovan. I don't. Do you know Jim Donovan at all? I he, don't. I gotta look him up. Uh, he started with a, a band called Rusted Root. Oh, okay. Uh, which is a fairly local band, uh, and he runs uh, another band. He started uh, on uh, his own later after that group broke up but uh he is an amazing djembe player and uh, does a lot of drum circle kinds of things but uh amazing musician in general but jim donovan is a local guy that uh you should check out if you're in the pittsburgh region uh he's an excellent hand drummer in that way and there's bunches of others so that's probably something i should mention is that uh i give you a couple caveats and that I, my apologies if I, any of these pronunciations are wrong. Uh, if I leave people out, I'm sure I'm leaving people out. And just generally for my ignorance, uh, there's not a lot I know about anything. Uh, but most of these things I know like fractions, you know, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> so, uh, those are a couple of my caveats. So, uh, but anyway, yes, West African traditions for sure. And then number two is also not surprising would be Brazilian. Absolutely, another uh, uh, another style of music that has a lot of West African roots uh, is Brazilian drumming, samba, uh, bossa nova, bião, mm -hmm. and the dozens and dozens of other different Brazilian styles that come uh, from all over. Uh, the nation of Brazil. But uh, percussion instruments of Brazil are beginning uh, to be more and more common. As a percussionist, you, you, I don't say you, you need to know these things, but it's getting to the point where you kind of need to know. You need to have a little basic pandeiro technique. You need to know how caixa uh, is played and the kinds of rhythms that Kaisha's play or surdu and how important that is to the the rhythm uh of samba is in particular uh but all those instruments of the escola de sambas uh i think is uh they're they're not going to hurt certainly to get under your hands but uh that music is so involved and so deep as well uh but all these instruments uh all the little techniques used to play them 
can help you do myriad things on the drum set. Mm-hmm. Uh, watching great Brazilian drummers play on YouTube, drum set players, you'll notice uh, when they're playing swingy rhythms, uh, they might be using a, a technique used specifically for the tambourine, a little uh, instrument. Uh, it sounds like tambourine, but it's got no jingles on it, etc., etc. There's this wild technique you have to use to play tambourine. Uh, they use that playing the ride cymbal to try to get dig it, dig it, dig it, dig it, dig it, dig it. You know, uh, get all those sixteenth notes to happen at that that those uh, pretty bright tempos. Escola mm-hmm. de samba. So. Knowing those instruments, knowing those rhythms uh, is is pretty important. But if you've never heard a batucada play uh, during carnival season, again, do yourself a favor and check that out. There would be literally hundreds of people playing percussion instruments, 99% of which are not professional drummers. They're just plumbers and electricians and whatever else, uh, housewives. They're, you know, they'll pick up a, uh, a cuica and just go to town on this cuica and they they don't really know what they're playing rhythmically necessarily but they're excellent at what they do and you put a whole bunch of people together doing these rhythms at the same time it is it's magical it, that that groove that is created inside of brazilian music is is on a whole other level than i think what we approach in this country trying to imitate those musics so uh, the deeper you can get into that stuff, the deeper you can get into those grooves and figure out what makes them tick or get with somebody in your local area to kind of help you navigate this music and where to start. Uh, I think that's uh, that's huge. Uh, but so drum set, uh, you had Tom interviewing the great Duca da Fonseca. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is an excellent one to start with, Erto. Another great drum set player, uh, percussionist from Brazil, uh, Minu Sineu uh, is another one. Uh, all these guys are, are fantastic uh, drum set and uh, percussionists uh, in the Brazilian tradition. So check those folks out. Uh, around Pittsburgh, if you're fortunate enough to see uh, like Salsamba play, you can get to hear Tom Went play some of that Brazilian music. It's fantastic. Do yourself a favor and check that out. Um, another guy that we're friends with, I think you know Adam Osmansky, right? right. Yeah. Uh, lives in London now. That dude has gone deep into the Brazilian world. Uh, and, yeah, does some blogging and, and uh, podcasts and that sort of thing as well. So look up that guy. Adam Osmansky is uh, another great one that I've had a – uh, a few chances to get together and talk uh, Brazilian music with, and he's a he's just a wealth of knowledge on that stuff. So before we go into the the next one, um, touch on the topic of like how deep to go, you know, because the, these these cultures are, are centuries. There's so much tradition, and you can like when I was in college, it was kind of a rabbit hole. Like I didn't want to, I didn't want to quote unquote appropriate anything. I wanted to get it as deep as yeah. I could, but then it was like, I could spend 20 years trying to play a samba and never get it even close to what it really should sound like. So absolutely. And I, I completely agree. And I, I go, I, I go round and round with that, that thought myself all the time. Like, am I really, am I really doing this justice or am I appropriating 
I like to think that I, I have my my best intentions are that I'm trying to get enough of this knowledge together for myself that I can make a decent representation of it when I'm playing that music because I have to play that music a lot. Mm-hmm. So why not play it as authentically and as well as I possibly can? And I'm constantly working on that stuff. And the more I learn about playing this percussion instrument with my hands, that definitely directly transfers to what I'm doing on the drum set. And the more I pick up of that stuff or the more Brazilian concerts I see or clinics from Brazilian musicians or West African musicians or whoever, uh, it all directly transfers to the drum set uh, and just enhances that knowledge. But to answer your question, I think uh, it's really up to the individual. For me, I felt like I needed to get deeper into these things because I wanted to teach it to my students. Mm. I wanted to have a Batsukata up at Slippy Rock and have these folks that have never heard Brazilian music ever in any way, shape or form, be able to play this music and get exposure to it, not just from a listening level, but actually being involved in it. I think that's one of the big things that uh, I try to uh, give to my students is uh, just exposure to it, but from the inside. Uh, it's one thing to listen to the music and to read the, the notated rhythms. It's a whole other thing to pick up that instrument and try to get that rhythm to be played properly on the instrument. Even if you only pick up one instrument inside of that uh, batsukata, it, it's going to change the way you, you think about rhythm and about music and about that style. I, that's what's important to me. Uh, that's what I'm trying to get across to my students as best as best I can in the limited capacity that I, I'm able to actually. Which leads right into the next one, which is why I wanted to ask that question now, because when I started digging into Afro-Cuban percussion, it was, especially because I was friends with Cuban percussionists in Philly and like the way they've played, it was like, I don't even know what language you're speaking. <laughs> I can't even understand yep. what's happening. And it was frustrating. It was frankly frustrating. It was beautiful and super inspiring, but it was like, I can't even, I'm not even going to go there anymore. Absolutely. I can't do it. So why, yep. what's Afro-Cuban bringing to the table for you? Well, I have a, of all of these, well, maybe not all of these styles uh, or all these uh, categories that we're going to be talking about. Um, Afro-Cuban music has been something that has been around with me probably longer than most of these uh, these other aspects in that um, playing in school bands, you might come across uh, a Latin tune or, you know, you, you're learning those grooves from a pretty early age. When I first went to my very first jazz camp uh, as a senior in high school, uh, the drummer out there, uh, uh, Ronnie Bedford was his name, uh, great jazz drummer, uh, wrote out a list of just some basic styles. Uh, and that was a, my real first exposure to seeing the written notation of how a samba was written or how cha-cha-cha uh, uh, was written or how a mambo was, was mm. supposed to be written. And we talked a lot about that and listened to some of that music and showed me how to play a little bit of it and got started. So I, I've been dealing with this for a long time. Uh, I also was a huge Santana fan of all things when I was a kid. And that helped 
a lot. Uh, there's so much of that language that uh, is in that music too, and it's equally valid as the other stuff. It just uh, it's just put in a different context is all. Um, so that helped a lot. When I got to Florida State, uh, there was a uh, a Latin jazz group there that needed a new drummer uh and i stepped into that role and had to learn all that stuff uh very quickly and that was a lot of fun uh the conga conga player was uh a really good educator as well and helped me a lot out a lot taught me some basic conga patterns even though i was i was playing drum set in that group it's still it 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 started that process of understanding, okay, the conga player does this. This is their role inside of it. This is what they're typically going to do. If they're going to improvise, they're going to do it this way. Uh, if they're going to play in clave, they're going to do it this way. Uh, that kind of stuff. Um, or when we change grooves, I'm going to change my pattern on the congas. Learning his role in the group was extremely important to me and how not to step on his, mm. his rhythms and, like, and vice versa. Uh, so those kind of things helped out. Uh, reading more and more jazz ensemble charts and playing with different jazz groups and listening to more stuff helped. Uh, then I got to uh, Pittsburgh and fairly quickly I was asked by some friends uh, to play timbales in a salsa band. That that band's called Azucar. We've been around uh, in some form or another for close to 25 years now. Uh, and it's had some great percussionists in that group. Uh, the great George Jones has played congas in that group forever. Uh, there's a great, uh, now as timpanist for the Houston Symphony, Leo Soto was the long-standing timbalero for that group. Uh, and it's mostly original material, but I had never really played timbales before uh, in a salsa band. But again, I was given this opportunity it's like well now's the time i know this much about it let's see how much i can expand my knowledge of it and really dug in i got a lot of help from george got a lot of help from leo got a lot of help from other percussionists and musicians that came in and out of that group so uh yeah my exposure to afro-cuban music has been uh much deeper than most Groups, but yes, it is like speaking another language. Mm -hmm. George used to say to me, uh, George Jones, a combo player in that group, used to say to me all the time, like, George, help me out, man. Like, what am I doing wrong? How, how can I make this stuff better? He's like, man, you just need to listen more. <laughs> just keep listening. Like, <laughs> yeah, all right. I'll keep listening. I was listening already, but I'll keep listening. That was his way of telling me you're not there yet. You just mm. keep listening. And that's yet another thing I'm trying to pass along here is just just listening to this stuff is the, the, the first step. If you want to get deeper into it, there's always ways to get deeper into it. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book, uh, Rebecca Morion Santana's, uh, Carlos Santana's wife from a while back wrote this great book called The Salsa Guidebook. No. It is an amazing uh, book that goes through every aspect of salsa music. Uh, it covers all the parts, all the history of the music, writes out sample charts in the back, all the different rhythms that each of those instruments play, 
from the piano parts to the bass tumbao to the conga parts to the timbales to the maracas to clave and again lists of all the great players in uh in that style of music uh yeah it's uh it's amazing uh amazing text and i got a lot out of that book there's other drum set books that i got a lot out of and um so yes um but yeah, it, but checking out clinics and uh, seeing guys like Giovanni Hidalgo play multiple times, like uh, that all helps. It helped a lot with me. Um, but yes, it is it is another language for sure. Uh, and just like any other language, it's best if you can approach it from the inside out. If you can go and live in that country and stay with a host family, this bilingual, you know, that's always the best way to learn a, a language other than just like studying a textbook or mm. an online tutorial or whatever. If you're in it, you're more than likely going to retain some of that stuff and you're going to get insight into it. Um, and that for me was, uh, again, another one of these opportunities that came about uh, several times in my life and my career that have helped me get a little bit more uh, just deeper inside of these musics uh, again, approaching from the inside out. So I would just, I would highly recommend that everybody uh, try to get with these local folks that know these musics and get a lesson with them, talk with them, listen to some music with them. That's a great way to check it out. Like who are you listening to? Who are your heroes? listen to those records with them and you'll see them light up and they just want to talk about and play and uh, all that kind of stuff. I've done a lot of lessons over the years with various people. Uh, I would love to do more and I'm going to very, very soon. So, yes. Uh, That's a great point. Cause I, I my, some of my best drum set lessons were when he would play his favorite records and his favorite drummers. And it was like, why do you like Blakey so much more than, cause at the time I was like a Bill Stewart obsessed. Sure. And he was like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's, let's throw on this Blakey record. Yeah. And it really set like a tone of like, oh, there's some depth here that I'm not read. I'm not quite getting yet. I've got to dig Absolutely. in further. And every one of these things is, it's the same, it's the same way they're, they've reached this, this level. Uh, and, and it's not that I'm not trying to be Horacio Hernandez, you know, I, I, I respect that and I love that, but that's, that's not my thing. And, and nobody wants to hear me do that, you know, uh, but you can, you can get stuff from that. Uh, you can get a lot of things from that, mm -hmm. that relationship and, and seeing them play and talk uh, about what's important to them. What do they value in that music? And uh, what are they thinking about when they're playing it? You know, uh, in their histories, like in their histories, histories, you know, like the people that they were taking from and who they were checking out, like, man, it's, it's so deep and all this stuff is so beautiful. It's just, uh, you, these folks are a lot more accessible than I think people, uh, than people think they are, you know, they would love nothing more than to share this stuff about their music. That's what I found in, mm. in the world of percussion in general. Most of us are open-minded, 
uh, really cool people, you know, that just want to help you uh, get to that next level in your own playing or just share their music with you. Uh, and I've been fortunate enough to come across these folks many, many times uh, over the years. Um, so some of my heroes in in this, uh, before I forget, uh, Horacio El Negro Hernandez, uh, great, great player, uh, was one of the first to really bring that left foot clave thing uh, into the drum set world. Uh, got exposure to him when I was an undergrad. He had just defected from Cuba and came over to the United States with Paquito de Rivera on a tour. And he spent uh, about a week at North Florida. Uh, he didn't speak a word of English. And it was just us drummers standing around Horacio while he's playing all this stuff. <laughs> We're like, how are you? What? What is this? <laughs> nice. <laughs> you know? Like we, our minds were collectively blown, and for the next month and a half, we're all sitting around trying to work on our left foot clave. <laughs> but, but yeah, so uh, fantastic, and he's he's another one of those guys. He he loves to talk about music, and he he would love nothing more than to just share uh, his history and his life and and play play rhythms with you. You know, mm -hmm. Mark Walker is another one and probably one of the more unsung heroes of the drumming world. In my opinion, he's the guy I want to be when I grow up. Uh, he's taken all this stuff, uh, so many different styles of music from around the world and learned how to play it and play it really, really well. Uh, Mark Walker is definitely one of those guys you want to check out. Um, so uh, Ignacio Barroa, Bobby Sanabria, around locally, uh, obviously Hugo Cruz, uh, directly from Cuba. If you've never checked out Hugo Cruz, holy cow, this guy's, he's, uh, he's just a virtuoso on all the percussion instruments. Uh, classically trained as well in the Russian Conservatory in Havana. Uh, yeah, definitely a good dude to check out. Uh, George Jones, Noel Quintana, a uh, great Puerto Rican, Conguero, uh, who I've studied with. Uh, yeah, he's amazing as well if you're in the local Pittsburgh area. But, man, every every city's got these folks around. So check them out. So now we move to the biggie, European Western Orchestral Percussion. <laughs> Convince me, a drum set player, why I need to learn how to play glockenspiel. <laughs> well, I can't convince anybody on why you need to play the glockenspiel, but I can convince you that you need to check out this music because it's ex extremely deep. Uh, and there's so much to be had from this. I just got done watching... Uh, the Pittsburgh Symphony, which is an amazing world-class orchestra, their percussion section uh, is just, it's just the best. Uh, they just got done playing Stravinsky's Rite of Spring this past weekend. My wife and I went up in, on Friday night and heard them. Holy cow. Like, if you're a drum set player and you can't get something out of watching those percussionists play that music, uh, yeah, I, you should. <laughs> uh yeah seeing somebody like uh andy reamer who is the principal percussionist for the pittsburgh symphony the very first piece they played he's got a triangle part 
uh, which is funny to see Andy playing a triangle because man's like six seven, <laughs> huge dude. He's got the tiny little able triangle, and uh, yeah, it he played three notes in a row, just little crescendo on that triangle. Just the touch he uses on that triangle, it I just got a smile on my face. Mm. Like, that's it. Now. Granted, that's that's not the sexiest thing to as a drum set player to watch somebody do. But when you get to be my age and you've seen people do these kinds of things as much as I have, you really respect the touch that orchestral percussionists have that most drum set players don't get close to. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a dynamic contrast in things you can do with your fingers inside of your grip uh, that can affect the sound of every instrument you play on the drum set. Uh, so much so. So uh, it can't be overstated how important that that kind of finesse is. Uh, especially in most of the gigs I play these days, I have to play quietly. Mm -hmm. uh, and people don't want you to just play quiet and boring they want you to play intensely but quietly and that skill is is something that needs to be developed and i i found the best way to develop that for me and a lot of my students has been exposure to the classical repertoire learning how to play the concert snare drum really well that does wonders for your your technique rudimental mm -hmm. snare drum as well obviously but uh, learning how to play a marimba, learning how to play mallet instruments, that it all goes uh, hand in hand into develop, developing your ears, developing your touch, de developing your sensitivity, uh, and also just knowing how to phrase. That's a huge one that we don't, it's a mystical word and a very curious word uh, that people talk about, like, play more musically, like, phrase that better like what does that mean mm -hmm. uh, you know a lot of drum set players if you're not exposed to this this world it, it can sound like a different language you know like okay great how do we do that percussion training classical european percussion training uh will access that for you you know it'll expose you to those kinds of things and uh, allow you to build that up in your technique. Uh, so that's that's my main thing about about classical percussion uh, is it how much it can do for your ability to read music, ability to hear music differently, ability to phrase and play more musically, but also finesse, touch, dynamic control, all that stuff uh, is hugely important for the drum set. Uh, and you can get that from uh, a good classical training. And it, fortunately for us, there's tons of these folks that teach. You can go get a lesson with them. And again, every city around the world has these folks. Uh, and they would be happy to help you get from point A to point B with your playing. Uh, even if you're just a drum set player, uh, you can go get some of the stuff from them. And I think that's important to do. Not to mention it's some of the, it's some of the most beautiful music ever, you know?
Mm. Uh, Charlie Parker's favorite piece is Igor Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. There's something to be said about that. Mm. You know, all the tunes he could have picked uh, in the 1940s and 50s, he he enjoyed Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. If it's good enough for Charlie Parker, it's good enough for me, you know? Uh, and there's just so much other beautiful stuff out there that doesn't even have percussion on it. Uh, so that world is, uh, don't, don't deprive yourself of that world just because you don't think it doesn't directly transfer to what you're doing. It does. It does. You just have to, you have to go to that music, just like jazz music. It's been said, you know, that music is not going to come to you. You've got to go to it. Mm -hmm. It takes a kind of a leap of faith to, uh, to go that route, but it's, it's definitely worth it. Definitely. Um, so Again, locally, uh, shout out to all the Pittsburgh Symphony musicians, uh, Andy Reamer, Chris Allen, Jeremy Branson, Sean Galvin. Uh, their new timpanist is James Benoit, uh, John Soroka, Ed Steffen, uh, Tim Adams, Tom Freer. All these guys are, are local to this region. Uh, they're all amazing players. Tim Adams doesn't live here anymore, and Ed Steffen moved to San Francisco, but uh, these folks are just, they're just the best. And I've heard most of these folks, well, maybe not most of these folks, I've heard people like Andy Reamer and Ed Steffen play drum set, and Tom Freer play drum set, Tim Adams play drum set. They are great drum set players mm -hmm. too, in addition to all that stuff. I Go hear Andy Reamer play some jazz vibraphone, folks. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. it will blow your mind. That dude is next level all the way around. Uh, and makes great snare drum sticks, makes great rope drums, all that stuff right here in Pittsburgh, right here in River City. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. So what is your, your go-to concert snare drum text these days? Uh, most of the time, I well, I use a bunch of different ones. I, most of the time around here, uh, the Mitchell Peters books are uh, kind of baked into the PMEA uh, literature. So when a student is preparing for district honor band or region band or uh, all state uh they're usually having to read mitchell peters pieces for better or worse i love those books uh they they're not my favorite books for drum set but they're they're good books uh there's a lot of hard music in there mm -hmm. uh, since they have to learn that uh, i use those books primarily just because that's what they're they're already used to it they're already used to his style of writing the way the book looks, how it's presented, all that kind of stuff. So I use those books a lot. Usually start with the intermediate book and go to the uh, the advanced. Uh, but there's odd time solos and all that stuff in there. There's a bunch of great Mitchell Peters books. 
the Serone I've used a bunch. I was taught with the uh, Morris Goldenberg, the orange. Yeah, same, yeah. Uh, snare drum book. I used the blue Goldenberg uh, marimba book or mallet book. Still do, uh, much to my uh, students' dismay. But uh, also uh, De La Cluse. I am a huge fan of uh, Jacques De La Cluse's books, um, not just Du's Etudes, but the Kais Clarianas, the Initium series, uh, his Test Claire uh, is great. Um, I, I love Jacques De La Cluse's stuff. Uh, and it's, it's great for a lot of things, uh, finger related and mm -hmm. grip related, stroke related, uh, dynamic related, especially. Yeah. Those are my go-tos. All right. What's next? Oh, marimba and basically keyboard solo soloing. Is that what the, yeah. So this goes back to my very first paystick we were talking about in 1993. Uh, I think the very first evening concert was Keiko Abe. Mm. Uh, playing a solo recital. Uh, I had never really heard a solo marimbist before that time. Um, and yeah, she blew me away. One of the major reasons she blew me away as much as she did, in addition to her great music, uh, was, first of all, she's like 5'2". She's tiny, tiny Japanese woman. Uh, and she's playing on an instrument that it like comes up to her chest almost. Uh, and she is bouncing all over the place and sliding all over the marimba playing with four mallets, playing with six mallets, playing with two mallets. doesn't matter. Uh, and getting the biggest fattest sound and the most energy I've ever seen out of a performance in general, much less a concert percussionist, that kind of passion, when you're playing is uh it just it hit me it it changed my life uh literally that day um watching her play uh, it was uh it was amazing i had a friend one of those friends that drove up with us in the bronco too <laughs> that day who was on the uh the basic logistics team and hauled her marimba off the stage after that concert and he said she broke three marimba bars oh my which I believe, I completely believe it, because she hits the marimba like nobody else. Uh, and just a beautiful person. She's the kindest person. Uh, but anyway, she started me on this path of, uh, of four mallet marimba playing. I, I, I fell in love with that instrument uh, so much so that my wife and I bought one of our own. Um, but it all started, yeah, with, with Keiko Abe. Um, Obviously, Evelyn, Evelyn Glenny, who I've gotten a chance to see a couple of times uh, over the years and seen her do clinics. She is amazing. Uh, can't say enough good things about her and the way she plays. But the main reason I bring this up, uh, like why should anybody get into formalet playing if you're a drum set player primarily, it's because of the way they play the instrument, the way they move around the instrument. Uh, the, the very physical nature of playing marimba from a in, in a formalet way i think can be very eye-opening and illuminating for for a drum set player uh to see again how touch is really uh important on the instrument but also just 
uh, the way you shape a phrase visually. Mm. It's not something we talk about a lot, but the difference in uh, if you play a note like this versus playing a note like that, that difference doesn't make a whole lot of it doesn't make a lot of sense in the uh, or difference in terms of sound. It still sounds like a hand clapping, but this one sounds longer somehow. <laughs> right. you know what I'm <laughs> yeah. That's that's a huge part of being a marimbas, especially if you're somebody like Keiko Abe. Uh, to get out these mostly staccato tones that we get out of these instruments. The marimba is an exception. It's a, it's a resonant instrument for sure, but it makes a difference. And I think visually uh, we lose sight of that sometimes with our sound. Uh, and that's an, another thing, yet another thing I think we can get from the concert arena. Uh, one of my favorite musicians to watch is, is Ed Stefan. I mentioned him in the last, uh, last segment. Uh, Ed is an extremely visual timpani player. He's the principal timpanist for the San Francisco Symphony. He was with the Pittsburgh Symphony before that, and several other symphonies before that. He's he's a he's a badass. But anyway, he will do that same thing where he wants to get a long note out. He makes it look long. I I I love that aspect of it, and I use that aspect of it a lot in my drum set playing. It seems a little showy, maybe, uh, to some people, or why are you doing this extra motion? But I, I don't use it all the time in my drum set playing, but I, I definitely use it a lot uh, in my concert playing, but uh, and I teach it to my students. I, I, it's a big thing I try to get across to them as well. But that's definitely something that has come up uh, through... Uh, just the watching of marimba and teaching marimba all these years. Mm. Uh, that's definitely something I, I've noticed and it's helped me a lot as a, as a drum set player for sure. Uh, uh, side note, did you happen to catch Josh Fries's debut with the Foo Fighters stream yesterday? I saw that it was there and I, I did not watch it, but I I'm so excited because yeah. I'm a huge fan of the Foo Fighters. I love Taylor Hawkins. I'm a huge Dave Grohl fan. And Josh Freeze, man, I, I love that dude. He's, he, yeah, he's so great. Did you watch you, it? I think you've got a day and a half left to stream it before they yank it cool. down. So yeah, I will do definitely. Do I will <laughs> definitely. The reason I I mentioned is because exactly the experience you had with Keiko Abe, I had with Josh Freeze playing with the Foo Fighters yesterday. Really? Like holy cow! This is giving me chills because he was playing like a a, a giddy teenager. So much energy and just going yep. for it at the end of the tunes he wasn't too cool to be like yeah that was badass <laughs> <laughs> and you can feel it in the band they're absolutely. like holy cow we're like we're back to life absolutely you know like this is yeah. insane there's something to be said about the way you you play music physically mm -hmm. what your face is doing what your hands are doing what your feet are doing the the choreography of of doing all this stuff and it, it adds an energy that's intangible. Uh, it's not, it's, it, you don't get that from everybody. Mm -hmm. you know? And I, he, I thought as soon as I heard his name, I was like, yeah, yeah, he's, perfect. he's the right one. <laughs> I had heard uh, that they were considering Matt Cameron for a, a period of time. 
Uh, now the drummer with Pearl Jam and has been for years in Soundgarden. I was a huge fan of, of Matt Cameron, still am. Like one of my favorite drummers. I, uh, but the more I thought about that, it's like Matt Cameron. As much as I love him, he's not he's not the right fit for that band. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't have that Taylor Hawkins, Josh Freeze kind of energy. This bubbly and he's smiling a lot. You know? I, yeah. I hope I've ever seen Matt smile to be honest (laughs) (laughs) so i for them it probably wasn't the best fit i and i yeah i'm so happy for them that's fantastic i can't wait yeah unfortunately this this will air after they've yanked it down but maybe it'll be available sometime soon but i'm like i want to buy tickets to these shows it's like man they were ripping you can see pat smear was just so happy to be playing (laughs) faster than the record you know it was like they were just having so much fun (laughs) <laughs> i love that and i love that about the foo fighters they they just seem to have much, that much fun all the yeah. time i i love watching that the chemistry of that group has just been great i've seen them a bunch of times live too right? i've never and seen them always fantastic yeah all right the next one you've got this is another deep one that i i dabbled in for a year in college and then realized no way indian <laughs> classical you and me both north and south india i Yes. So, uh, depending on how much you know about uh, Indian music, there it's divided up into uh, two different styles, basically, North and South Indian. Uh, North Indian is uh, Hindustani, and uh, South is Carnatic, they call it. Um, we know the North Indian style probably much more than the South Indian style in the United States, just because of the popularity of a guy named Ravi Shankar, a great sitar player, and his longtime partner and collaborator uh, on tabla was uh, Usted Alaraka Khan, otherwise known as Alaraka. Alaraka is also the uh, the father of Zakir Hussain, who's inarguably the best tabla player on planet Earth right now. Um, and there's a bunch of history there, but we're used to that style. We've heard that style. And I think almost every American can recognize what a sitar sounds like and what a tabla sounds like, uh, or what tabla sound like. But, uh, yeah, as far as, um, well, as far as South Indian drumming though, I, they're close, they're related to each other. But the instruments aren't quite as well known. Uh, instruments like burdungam, which is basically like a two-headed tabla, a barrel-shaped drum, uh, and they play it this way in their laps. Uh, there's a, a tambourine called a kanjira uh, that has one set of jingles on the on the bottom of it. It's got a monitor lizard skin on it, uh, and it can be tuned much the same way that you can depress tabla by playing with your fingers and pressing in with the butt of your hand you can change the pitch of the larger of the two tabla drums so anyway there's there's two deep and very very rich centuries old traditions in both uh north and south indian drumming uh the things we can get from this are are many fold but i would encourage everybody it, even though you're probably not going to run out and buy a set of tabla and try to get some tabla lessons with somebody or learn how to play burdungam or kinjira or whatever. Uh, you can 
go online and find out all kinds of information about the system of bowls uh, or rhythmic syllables that they use inside of, of Indian drumming uh, in Indian music uh, and start to learn those because Indian music is filled with odd groupings of stuff. And we in Western music are, we're not all that exposed or, or all that, uh, well, we just don't have a lot of experience with odd groupings of stuff. Um, I probably never played a quintuplet until I was midway through college, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just a different way of approaching counting of rhythm and uh, time signatures and that kind of thing. But plus polyrhythm is such a huge part of, uh, of that music, both North and South Indian uh, stuff. The, the, the bowls or syllables they use are different in the North and the South, but they still uh, address the same areas of rhythm. And I think it's really, uh, it's really, beneficial to get in, involved in that as much as you can if for no other reason than just to uh to maneuver odd time signatures and odd groupings a little bit more easily as a western percussionist or drum set player for sure and there's scads of great percussionists and drum set players that have taken this uh taken these rhythms to heart and not necessarily learned how to play tabla or learn how to play any of these instruments specifically, but they learn the counting systems and they learn how ragas are shaped, for example, and how the forms of these tunes come together. Uh, Steve Smith is one of the obvious ones uh, who has toured with Zakir Hussain and his groups many times over. Uh, got to hear him play with that group uh, a number of years back in Central PA. Um, Dan Weiss is another one. Uh, that I know you guys have talked about uh, a couple times on your podcast, but uh, Trelock Gertu is another amazing musician. I haven't heard a lot from Trelock. If anybody knows where Trelock is or what Trelock is doing these days, I would love to know because that guy, he was like on everything in the late nineties and then just kind of disappeared. And he was amazing drummer. If you've never seen Trelock play, uh, he sits on the floor uh and uh, plays a drum set that's been modified to sit on the on the ground. He has a set of tabla in front of him as well, uh, but amazing musician. Uh, and uh, kind of took all these uh, Indian classical music uh, ideas rhythmically and has uh, approached it uh, on the drum set that way. Uh, locally, there's a guy also in Rusted Root uh, that lives up here in... Uh, in Zelianople Harmony area is a guy named Jim Despirito. Jim Despirito uh, was a percussionist in Rusted Root for a long time and went to India and studied, studied tabla with a guru over there for, uh, for a couple of years, I believe. Uh, I could be wrong that way, but as far as the amount of time, but um, he's a, a great resource locally uh, in this region. If you reach out to Jim, he would, uh, he, yeah, can get you into that kind of thing. Uh, so, yes, lots of beautiful music in that area. That's a good question about Treelock. I know we sell a ton of his signature sticks still. So, 
<laughs> he's still out there. I think I saw like a quick clip of him playing with somebody recently. I I say recently it's probably been three years ago now, but yeah, that then I was just like, wow, I haven't heard from him in literally like twenty years. Like, mm-hmm. where's he been? What has he been doing? I hope he's okay. We'll find out. Freelock, if you're out there, (laughs) keep putting out some stuff. Hit me up at drumkennypodcast at (laughs) gmail.com. Exactly. So this next category, I'm not, I'm not even sure what you mean. Hand and finger drumming. Yeah. So I, this is why I put this one after the Indian drumming, because there's, uh, there's a lot of elements of Indian classical music technique with using your fingers hands and fingers uh, on frame drums mm. primarily, but it's also the same techniques that can be used on things like darbukas and doombeks, uh, udu drums, all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a couple of main people, a few main people that uh, kind of, uh, and, and I'm going to miss some people, but uh, there's a couple folks that, have been doing this for a long, long period of time and uh, good people to check out if you want to see how they've adapted these kinds of things to frame drums and, and finger drumming techniques, tambourines of all different types. Um, but Glenn Velez is one of the, the first guys to start this. Uh, Glenn Velez came to University of North Florida when I was there and gave a, a clinic uh, on uh, finger drumming and hand drumming and taught us some of the Indian counting syllables, how to count that music, uh, when it taught us a few different compositions and some basic finger drumming techniques. Um, those have been really, really helpful to me. He, uh, Glenn was uh, a drum set player as well, started on the drum set before coming to uh, the hand drumming world. One of his protégés was a, a woman by the name of Lane Redman, also in the PAS Hall of Fame. All these folks are in the PAS Hall of Fame. Uh, she kind of took what he did and expanded upon it and did her own thing with it. John Bergamo, who is, or John Bergamo, uh, is uh, another one that was doing the same things. These are around the 90s, early 80s, uh, in through the 90s and early part of the 2000s when, when this was was really happening. Um, uh, a local drummer to check out if you're in the Cleveland area ever is a guy named Jamie Haddad, uh, who was the percussionist with Paul Simon uh, and still is to this day. Uh, amazing, amazing uh, percussionist and drummer, but uh, does a lot of these finger drumming techniques, but incorporated into his drum set. Mm-hmm. Uh, so definitely somebody to uh, to check out that way. But uh, the way they've combined the thing I, I love about this style of percussion is that you can use it to play on literally anything. Uh, there's videos of Glenn Velez and John Bergamo playing on like nipple gongs and doing this stuff or playing on tambourines or playing on drum set or playing on a concert bass drum or whatever. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. You can play on literally everything with your fingers. Uh, but there's been people like John Bonham was playing with his hands on drums, right? Like we've all seen this happen, but there's a there's a whole other level to this that you can achieve, and it's not it's not quite as as difficult as you think, especially if you've been working on things like finger control exercises, going through each of your fingers. Like you have that digital dexterity as the drum set player already. 
Uh, this is just a, a cool, different way of getting sounds on instruments uh, that I really enjoy. And it, it's also a combination of so many different things, which I really like as well. So check that out. Yeah, I saw Glenn at a PASIC. That might have been 94 or something like that. And it was it was a mind-blowing experience. He had a big frame drum, yeah. and he was like doing a lot of snapping and stuff on yep. it. It's like, okay, I don't know what's Absolutely. happening here. And doing overtone singing. Yeah, exactly. Well, he taught us all how to overtone sing. Like, again, do you use this every day? No, nah, not really. But to a whole segment of, of people in the in the percussion world and in the music world, like that stuff is 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 the stuff. It's mm -hmm. the, that's the stuff they geek out over just as much as we geek out over Art Blakey Shuffle. You know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, these are the these are the real folks, man. Check these check these people out. They're they're amazing. Mark oh, Walker is another one. He's learned a lot of these finger drumming techniques. Oh yeah, man, I gotta. He get plays a mean show. Darbuka, man. Okay, Go that dude up. <laughs> the next category is uh, I kind of categorize as more of like a dance, Japanese taiko or choreography. Uh, yeah, there, there's a, a huge element of choreography inside of this music. Uh, they definitely put on shows with each piece they play, each composition. Uh, has a, uh, a very particular way you have to move while you play. Uh, this was a direct transfer to me um, from Keiko Abe. Seeing Keiko Abe play the marimba uh, and then seeing Kodo play taiko. Uh, Kodo is the most famous uh, Japanese festival drumming taiko group uh, in Japan, but they've toured the world many times over. Uh, seeing them play and seeing her play it it just kind of it just lined up for me like ah mm. it's it's all very japanese they they have a lot of um the japanese have a lot of uh, uh of rules about the way they play and um the way they uh, in, interpret music and it rules is a, it's the wrong way to to characterize it but um for lack of a better word but um it's extremely uh it's it's a very much a fine art but at the same time there's a lot of improvisation in it uh and i i love that about it uh and kodo is it's so physical uh that's the thing i've, I've noticed about uh, we've had a, a taiko ensemble up at slippy rock for the past seven or eight years or so um i went and studied some taiko drumming with a guy in hawaii uh by the name of kenny endo who's a another drum set player started in the drum set world and wanted to be a jazz and rock drummer uh and then got into taiko um and came at it from that angle uh so he was very helpful to me uh trying to to connect those two worlds uh, he'd already done that for us, you know, uh, and there's a bunch of people out there like that, but it's an extremely physical art. Uh, you start sweating immediately. Uh, there's a whole warm up process you got to go through before you start playing. Uh, the drummers of Kodo, for example, they live on an island. They have their own island in Japan that uh, they have a, a huge studio and they have living quarters and a kitchen. They grow all their own food. Uh, with a f handful of exceptions, and uh, the, I think there's a six-mile 
round trip on this mountain that they live on. Uh, there's a six mile round trip route that they run every single day. Rain, oh snow, doesn't matter. They all get up and run six miles up and down this mountain. Uh, they are in peak physical condition. And to see these people play, uh, it's it's on a, like I said, it's it's like on a spiritual level. It's mm. It transcends music uh, for these folks, for sure. When they're in it, they are in it. And you can take all kinds of stuff from that, just watching them play. Uh, not necessarily, again, taking the rhythms necessarily, but uh, in transferring that to drum set or, you know, taiko techniques or whatever, but it does transfer over. There are a lot of the taiko techniques that, uh, like holding the bocce, uh, you can hold them the exact same way you hold drumsticks or uh, hanger timpani grip is mm. they use that uh, for the larger bocce. So anyway, there's a, there's a ton of stuff there. Uh, but mainly for me, it's watching them play and getting the energy of it and the uh, the choreography of it, as you said. But the physical, it's so physical. You can learn a lot from the way they move when they play and applying that to drum set. It's almost like watching if Tai Chi were uh, a drumming art mm. form. It's it's a lot of that. Uh, and that's, yeah. Can't can't go wrong with that kind of stuff. Do you know anything about the tenure of these folks are in the in Kodo? Like, do they have a tenure of it lifetime? I mean, how they go? It, it's that? it's it's basically as long as they want to be in it, I think. But okay. uh, there's there's a pretty heavy rotation. Okay. There's not there's not a lot of these folks that are lifers, I don't think. Um, but they'll spend a few years in there uh, for sure, and then go out and do something else. There was a, a during. COVID, uh, PASIC in 2020, maybe 2021, uh, they they live streamed from the Kodo facility in Japan. Mm. And uh, there was a drummer, he was a drum set player, uh, went to Manhattan School of Music, maybe something along those lines, somewhere in the Northeast. I, I apologize, I don't remember his name or where he went, but uh, he was Japanese heritage, never been to Japan, never heard taiko music before, uh, but then got this opportunity to join Kodo and uh, moved out there and has, had been out there for several years up to that point and basically took his jazz knowledge and, and Western classical music knowledge and, and applied it to this uh, and applied it to Kodo and he's doing great. He sounds fantastic. So. Uh, it can be done, and again, it's there. The transfers there are—it's just numerous. So, we have two more categories here. Yeah, jazz vibraphone. The jazz vibraphone. So uh, this has some obvious transfers. Anybody that's playing the drum set in a jazz context, I think uh, you would be doing yourself a disservice if you didn't get some sort of harmonic and or melodic knowledge uh, to bolster your your drum set knowledge. Um, I think it's it's extremely helpful in the vibraphone is usually just the way that we do that because the vibraphone like the drum set was invented for jazz. Uh, 
it's a uh, hundred years old. Uh, drum sets roughly 120 years old. Uh, but yeah, the vibraphone is, is just a great way to, uh, get access to melodic and harmonic aspects of this music. Um, from a drummer's perspective, you hold this, the mallets exact same way you hold drumsticks. There's a, so many transfers from the technique. Honestly, playing vibraphone is not really all that hard to get a good sound out of. Uh, you don't have to spend weeks and months and years developing your sound on the vibraphone necessarily to get started. You know, uh, it's not like picking up an oboe and trying to make a sound out of a double reed, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's pretty straightforward. There's a pedal involved and yeah, it's, it gets complicated and there's dampening techniques and all that. But past that though, just to be able to get on a keyboard, uh, is a, a good experience for anybody. Uh, I've had to play vibraphone many, many times over the years in jazz contexts and, uh, in other different styles of music and it, it's it's always been helpful to be able to have an outlet to uh to get out some of the chordal things and write music on or uh something like that this is an actual percussion instrument not necessarily a piano because I, I suck at piano so i uh, i don't like hearing myself play piano so i don't like hearing myself play vibraphone either to be honest but i i at least enjoy uh the fact that it, it feels like a percussion instrument and I, I don't feel like I've gone to this other world to, to do that stuff. I can take what I know uh, and apply it to the vibraphone pretty easily and, and, and get to a, the harmonic language of it. Uh, it's also a great way to learn tunes. Uh, no better way to learn a tune. If you're trying to learn standards, if you're one of those young drummers out there uh, trying to learn tunes, it, it's a good idea to pick up a, a real book and just start going through picking out chords, uh, picking out melodies. If it just like we were talking about earlier, it's, it's one thing to listen to the music, to read the music, uh, to see the music being played. Uh, it's another thing to learn the music from the inside out. Uh, if you're learning those melodies and you're learning what the, the notes are of it and the chords of it, you're going to be that much more empathetic to the other musicians around you on the bandstand. Uh, but you're also going to know that tune forever. Mm. All the tunes that I've learned on the vibraphone, I know those tunes better than any other tunes I know. Uh, because I know how to play them, or at least I did at some point, went through and learned how to play them on the instrument. Uh, so it's a great way to, to deal with that. Plus, there's just tons of great jazz vibraphonists out there that are doing uh, wonderful things and they're part of our percussion world so uh support them check them out uh there's some amazing players going on on the vibraphone the vibraphone's having a little bit of a renaissance i feel like in the last few years mm -hmm. uh with great players like warren wolf and stefan harris uh jason marsalis is another one that's come into the vibraphone fairly recently uh he plays his butt mm -hmm. off uh, but all the old guys too, uh, going back and Mike Manieri is another one of my favorites from steps ahead. Uh, fantastic. Uh, Steve Nelson, local guy mm. from Pittsburgh, uh, played with Dave Holland all those years. Uh, well, uh, Dave Samuels, Dave Friedman, uh, got a chance to hang with David Samuels, uh, once when he came up to slippy rock as a guest artist. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, found out he was a drummer in between uh, 
Ruth Underwood and Ed Mann in Frank Zappa's groups. You know, Frank Zappa had a lot of drummers. I'm a huge Frank Zappa fan, but uh, he had two percussionists in his entire career that lasted longer than than a year or whatever. Uh, and yeah, Dave Samuels was one of those guys. Uh, he was uh, played with Zappa for a couple of months in between when Ruth Underwood left and when Ed Mann took over. Uh, I thought that was fascinating. We talked about Frank Zappa for a lot while he was here. It was, uh, it was really, really cool. So, but amazing, amazing uh, vibraphonist and marimbas percussionist. Uh, he had a group with Dave Freeman uh, called Devil Image, which was uh, a big group in the percussion world. They played PASIC many, many times over the years. Uh, but they set up a vibraphone and a marimba, a piece, and it looks like a double image or a, like a mirror. Uh, and while one of them's playing marimba, the other one's playing vibraphone, playing jazz types of tunes. They both are incredible improvisers. Go check out that music. It's it's really fascinating. Not to mention guys like Terry Gibbs and Red Norvo and Cal Jader and Milt Jackson and Lionel Hampton. And, you know, like the the lineage of great vibraphone players is is deep and is rich. And like I said, it's going through a little bit of a um, a little bit of a renaissance lately. And uh, if you've never seen Warren Wolf play the vibraphone, please do yourself a favor and check that dude out because he is, he is so bad. <laughs> he is so bad. I am always inspired when I watch that guy play. I hope I get a chance to play with him at some point because he's going to kick my butt all over the place. <laughs> Love it every minute. We were in the Maryland Allstate Jazz Band together our senior year. Really? <laughs> That's awesome, man. So I'm Warren, learning all kinds of stuff about you today. Yeah, Warren won the drum set chair and the vibe chair, so he had to pick one. Because <laughs> of course he did. And he, I mean, you're talking about learning music from the inside out. Like I, I was learning stuff from books and you know dabbling. He went over to the piano and played along the giant steps like perfectly. I was like, okay, this is what it means to be the guy who's going to become. Who we yep. became, <laughs> you know, on another level, deep man. into it. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely humbling and inspiring to to be the same age as that guy. And yeah, he was right. Ten years right. ahead of me for sure on the instrument. <laughs> He's probably just lucky to know you, Mike. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> All right, the, let's wrap this thing up. Now you're insulting me. No. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Dave. <laughs> he's he's into you, man. I know he is. He's checking this thing out. Tell me about marching and rudimental drumming and why we need to study that. Well, this is an obvious one. It's probably the most obvious one, and it's one that probably I can't say most, but many of the drum set uh, players around have experienced rudiments to some extent, right? Uh, maybe not been involved in a DCI core or marched in their marching band in high school or anything like that. But we all have been exposed to rudiments. And I, uh, it's something I unfortunately kind of came to very, very late. And I am really bad at rudimental drumming, but I do have a, a very strong appreciation for it. And as I get older, I think I'm enjoying working on that stuff more realizing its importance uh for me uh, especially when drum set related kinds of things but um but yeah the, i 
for me though uh the reason why i put this in is uh there's the american tradition of rudimental drumming uh that goes back to ancient drumming and and revolutionary war and civil war era rope drumming kinds of things which i love and i think that's that's fantastic uh dci wgi all the uh drum corps activities and the marching arts in this country it's uh it's an incredible lineage that we have going on here and that, that's amazing i love that stuff however there are several other types of rudimental drumming that i love just as much as those uh those being like scottish pipe band drumming french rudimental drumming uh which i didn't really learn about until fairly recently uh and then uh swiss or basil drumming which is the most wacky marching rudimental drumming you've ever heard in your life and if you've never heard these three styles of of rudimental drumming i would encourage everybody to to go out and check it out we have some remnants in our uh our american rudiments or pas rudiments uh however you want to characterize them from those different styles they they originated uh maybe in switzerland or they maybe originated in scotland or they maybe originated in in france but uh they've kind of been mutated over the years and and codified into what we now have as our rudiments but uh the traditions of these other these other branches that i just mentioned uh they're equally valid they're equally interesting and deep uh there's entire histories of that stuff and there's great players that play in those styles uh but in particular i'm just interested in trying to uh well i hear this music and i'm again i'm just curious about it i it just fascinates me uh to see hear basil drummers play uh in fosnot which is their carnival season uh marching groups and they wear these crazy paper mache helmets hats that are uh that look pretty goofy to us uh and they play these huge rope drums but the music sounds like if elvin jones were in a marching band it, it sounds a little <laughs> bit like that the this the time is stretched and pulled in a way uh in the way they phrase their stuff there's a lot of quintuplets inside of swiss basil drumming it just fascinates me and you hear them marching along and playing with the fifes uh it it's uh it's crazy to listen to and and super inspiring and i had i would have never known about any of this had it not been for uh percussive art society conventions and and that kind of stuff i, I have always enjoyed seeing those kinds of, of clinics and concerts when they come around at, at pas because it i learn something new every time i hear it learning swiss rudiments and learning scottish rudiments and learning french rudiments is it, it's been it's been really fun and a, a great way to supplement uh my rudimental knowledge which again like all this stuff is is very small but uh admittedly but this is a different way of approaching the same thing and i'm always for that i'm always for into that french rudimental drumming i know nothing about so that's a deep dive for me yeah there's there's all kinds of that stuff and, and a lot of it came that st stuff came from 
my love of Jacques de la Clouse's drumming and uh, a lot of, well, if you've played a de la Clouse piece, you've played some French rudimental types of, um, mm. of, of rudiments, but the Tompkins solos are the, the newest thing that I say new, they've been around for uh, a day. Uh, but they are uh, French rudimental drumming, American and French rudimental drumming combined uh, into these really hip little solos. I would encourage everybody to check those out. If you want to stretch your, uh, your playing a bit, uh, concert snare drum and uh, rudimental snare drum technique, these things will mess with you a little bit. Mm. Uh, they're a lot of fun and they're really hard. So check them out. Man, thanks for the. We went long this episode, but it was it was. Yeah, sorry, there's a man. lot to there's a lot to dig into. I like um, the last question I had to ask you, and it has nothing to do with any of this, but it's just tradition. What was your first snare drum? My first snare drum. I that first kit that I uh, that my parents bought for me came with several different snare drums. Hmm. Um, I think one of them was a leady. Uh, they were all five five inch deep snare drums. I I'm pretty sure one of them was a leady, and I think ugh, I don't even know what the other couple were. I uh, I quickly bought a pearl uh, export kit, and it came with that steel. <laughs> <laughs> six and a half inch deep snare drum uh this sounded awful but uh yeah that that was the first one i actually purchased with my own money but the first one i think i had was was probably a leady not bad yeah uh, to, to piggyback what is your go-to snare drum for gigs around town uh well uh i could actually show it to you there's a couple of them i got one right here I don't use this one too much on gigs, but this is one of our babies. This is a, a Lang Gladstone drum. Oh, wow. That's special. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I have a calfskin head on it. Uh, this was originally set up for a concert drum. It had gut snares on the bottom. Um, I took those off and then turned it into a jazz drum. But this is mm. a beautiful instrument. This is uh, uh, this shell was done by a guy in Canada name of pete stanbridge oh uh, yeah yeah uh, he does segmented shells you can see blocks mm -hmm. uh, this is that wood i don't know if you remember promark uh collaborated with pete stanbridge to create their i want to say 50th snare drum 50th anniversary snare drum i do remember that it was uh made from this uh ancient quarry wood that they dug out of a peat bog in new zealand <laughs> of course literally over ten thousand years old they they uh, carbon dated it and he bought one of those logs and produced all those promark drums out of it i couldn't afford the promark drum uh and they ran out of them before i could even get one but uh i had him make me he had enough of these tiles uh, that he made me this drum and Amazing. this is one of my favorite drums of all time. It's, it's so cool. And I've always been a fan of the Gladstone drums. Just can't afford one of the actual Gladstone. Drums. Yeah, you can. <laughs> <laughs> but my go-to, I'll go, excuse me for a second. 
This is one of my newer drums, but it's uh, one of the new Pearl drums. It's a solid shell. Oh. Walnut drum. Walnut. The inlay. Yeah, so this is this is my go-to drum for most of the gigs I play around town. I've got, I think, don't tell my wife, but I think I have like 14 snare drums now. Ah, uh, you're just a beginner. <laughs> I'm talking to you. Like, yeah, forget about it. But uh, but yeah, this is uh, that's the one I use most of the time. Nice it, solid shell with maple re rings. It look like yeah, super versatile and yeah, I could tune it up, tune it down. Does everything I need it to do. Yeah, amazing. It's a pretty simple drum too. It's not. There's nothing fancy about it. Well, man, thank you so much for the lesson. We all have a lot to dig into here. <laughs> like the longest episode ever. I'm so sorry, man. I could just talk for days and days and days. That's I want to find that uh, actually at, at college is just talk. talk. <laughs> you're a good lecturer. You earn your. I can, I can talk, man. Especially I need to. Myself. I need to find that Santana book though. That was the. Yeah, so I'll show it to you real quick. It's sitting right on my bookshelf. It's called the Salsa Guidebook. Oh, look at that. Okay, Rebecca Molion Santana. Uh, yeah, there's even like mon like piano montunos, bass tumbaos. Like I I played through everything on here. Like sat behind the piano, figured out the tumbaos, and yeah, it's it's all super helpful. Amazing. Fairly thick book, but it's great. Check it out. Who's the publisher? It's share music, S-H-E-R. All right, that is it for this week's episode. Hope you got something out of that. There's a lot of music to listen to and um, check out, and it's a lifelong study. Again, thank you for listening. Please head over to iTunes or Spotify. Give us a five-star rating. Write a review in the, the text area. We've been kind of slow getting reviews, so if you haven't done one yet, I would be um, forever thankful if you could write us a review. That does help the show rank higher when people search for drums and percussion and drummers. Um, in their different podcast apps. So again, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.